I just loved how our worship team hosted us in the presence of God so brilliantly this morning. It was excellent. And actually, in the presence of God, things happen. Uh, I heard that last week. Um, I won't embarrass that person necessarily, but in the presence of God, and, you know, we had all sorts going on last week, um, but in the presence of God, someone gave their life to Jesus. I mean, isn't that amazing? They gave their life to Jesus. In fact, in fact, I, I was talking to someone else, and, and that, 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 the, the friends of this person said, well, we haven't really talked about Jesus that much. But week in, week out, in the pre... Oh, I hear someone laughing. It came from that side of the room. Um, um, you know, God saves lives, and that's an amazing thing. If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. That's what we'll be looking at over the last few months. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. So, if you're a visitor here this morning, welcome to Jubilee Church. Keep coming. We love having uh, new people at church. Um, if you've been coming to Jubilee um, for a while now, hopefully you will have noticed that um, we put a lot of emphasis on the Bible. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Well, in a world that is always shifting and changing its views to suit its circumstances, and in many ways, and in many cases, to accommodate its selfishness and sin, the Bible holds us fast to godliness and truth. It shows us what God is like and what God likes in us. The Bible is really important. Why am I telling you this morning? Why am I telling you that this morning? Well, it's because we have a tough passage this morning as part of our Gospel of Matthew series. And this morning, as we open up Jesus' teaching, that's what it's going to be about today, Jesus' teaching on marriage and sex and singleness and divorce and remarriage, we also need to hear in the midst of all that I say that we, you know, that, that the passage says just today, we also need to hear loud and clear Jesus' overarching message. Jesus loves us. Jesus forgives us. Jesus restores us. Jesus weeps with us. Jesus prays for us. Jesus never lets go. And so, with that in mind, I just felt I wanted to say something to our younger audience. You're going to be in this, uh, this morning as you hear a whole load of stuff. Uh, maybe you're at school or college. Um, this will be tough for you. This will be tough for you, some of what we're going to say, because all around you, you'll be getting different, lots of different ideas, opposite ideas, counter ideas from TickSnap, InstaTalk, or whatever you use, from Netflix, from Love Island, I know, I know. Your teachers, even your friends, even your friends. A really influential African Christian called Augustine said, Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. I hope that's going to help us this morning. You have a tough ride, our younger crowd. That's for sure. And as best we can, 
We want to stand with you. It's not easy. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew 19, verse 1. Uh, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you also for difficult passages like this, but I thank you that your truth is good for us. I thank you, Lord, that your truth comes with power. I thank you, Lord, that your truth displays who you are to the world. And I pray as I kind of unpack this and my understanding of this, I pray, Lord God, that you'll give me the right words, that I don't offend wrongly, that you speak powerfully into the lives and hearts of our young people, our older people, people who have married, divorced, a single, the whole range of different relationships that have gone on in this church. I pray, Lord God, that you will speak your word in grace and truth and love. And I pray as a church, we come together in grace, truth, and love as we support everyone in Jesus' name yet hold fast to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, tricky, eh? What is going on? Well, the Pharisees are once again trying to catch Jesus out. There's a story behind what's going on here. They're plotting to kill him. You see, we've already read about what happened to John the Baptist. Remember him who spoke out against Herod's affair, divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife? all to satisfy his own pleasure. This is the context of what um, Matthew is writing about here. Remember what happened to John? (laughs) Head on a plate, remember that? No messing. And now Jesus is moving south through the province of Perea, where the very same Herod rules this area. And the Pharisees deliberately meet him there and question him about the very same thing divorce. Will they get Jesus's head on a plate too? That's the tense drama of what's going on. That's the context. 
And so above all, Jesus takes them back to the beginning. They ask about divorce. He takes them back to the beginning, marriage. Showing them that marriage and sex is actually not man's invention. That's his big message. Not man's invention, but God's invention. And he wants them to see the bigger purpose and meaning of marriage. Phil Moore writes, uh, writes this, In the bright fires of Christian witness, godly marriage shines brightest of all. So why, so why don't we do the same thing? And ask the question, what is the big unfolding story of marriage in the Bible that makes our understanding of Jesus so much bigger, starting right at the beginning? So the story starts in a garden, doesn't it? God created male and female as living, breathing metaphors. What's a metaphor? Those of you who have pulled your hair out, I've pulled all of mine out, over lockdown, homeschooling your kids, will have come across the word metaphor. A metaphor is something that is representative or symbolic of something else, something bigger. Genesis 1.26 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. One Bible teacher write about, writes about humanity created in the likeness of God like this. The royal office or calling of human beings as God's representatives and agents in the world. That's who you are. If you're not a Christian here this morning, regardless of what you believe about God, God believes in you. He made you in his image. And so when we're talking about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and relationships and sex, we're not just getting all loved up and dreamy and looking at what's fair and what's not. That's, not, that's how actually the world makes sense of these issues without God. We are describing God's image, his representation, how he wants to be known to the world. The marriage relationship between a man and a woman and all that it entails is primarily, there's other reasons, but primarily made for this. And any deviation from how it should be misrepresents God to the world. Do you get that? We don't often think of it like that, do we? Jesus loves his church to the point of death and never casts her away. That's the meaning of marriage. It's what is known in the Bible as a covenant bond, a, a binding forever promise. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I fall short every day. However, in Genesis 3, the story moves on slightly. We see broken love. Things go horribly wrong. Men and women break the only law God gives them. Tragedy strikes, what we call the fall. This disobedience breaks both humanity's relationship with God and the fellowship between humans. And it strikes marriage hard. Innocence and intimacy are replaced with shame 
and blame. Ruling over creation for man becomes a hard toil. Multiplying is made hard by the pain of childbirth on a woman. Not only that, Genesis 3.16 tells us that you, the, tells the woman, your desire shall be contrary to, against your husband. He shall rule over you. The Hebrew word there for desire uh, communicates a will to possess, to master, to overthrow. Gone is the unashamed, united love story between man and woman, the fall. Now there is conflict and power struggle. This is not how God wanted his image bearers to display what he was like, is like. And so this broken love still plays out very, every day amongst us, in the news, in our courtrooms, on divorce websites, in police domestic violence files, regularly in many of my 10-minute consultations, on social media, and even in my marriage, and even in your marriages. Broken love, the fall. But the metaphor continues. The story goes on. God doesn't give up. And the story continues with an increasing glimpses of hope in the midst of all this fallenness. Remember Isaiah 54, that passage calling us to stretch out our tents? Well, in that very same passage, the relationship between man and woman finds fresh meaning when God's covenant, his binding promise with his people is pictured as, you guessed it, a marriage. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. But sadly, this marriage is also not a happy one. The bride, not just women here, but men and women in this picture, all of humanity lives out this marriage unfaithfully, selfishly. But despite the bride's rebellion, despite her disregard, disobedience, dishonor, God remains sacrificially loving, perseveringly faithful. He will not break this marriage covenant. In fact, he will go out of his way always, always to reconcile himself back to her. Ezekiel 16 reads, uh, gives us a flavor of this God, uh, of, of this of how God sees his bride and how he interacts with her. It says, therefore, I am now, this is God speaking, therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, will, there I will give back her vineyards and will, and will make a door of hope. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. But how? How will he do that? Sunday school answer? You know, don't we? Enter the bridegroom. Not just a metaphor anymore, not just some representation of God, but the perfect image of God, the real deal, God himself, Jesus Christ on earth, the bridegroom. 
Suddenly, like a power line in the midst of a story going badly wrong, this age-old metaphor of God and His people married to one another comes alive bigger and better than ever before. Now the ultimate bridegroom is here. At last, at last, it will all be okay. And so that is why Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about marriage, saying, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love his church? He died for her. He gave himself naked and bleeding to suffer for her. He put her needs above his own. He sacrificed everything for her. Andrew Wilson writes, the romance between God and his people is restored by God alone, in Christ alone, through the cross alone. At the cross, in fact, the ceaseless love of God transformed his people altogether from dirty horse to spotless bride. That's very vivid language, isn't it? By a theologian. But that's how the biblical story unfolds. And so therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, no one, no one separate. Challenging truth. For some of us, painful truth. I hear that. I hear that. And we're going to address some of those things. So what do we make of this in our day-to-day -day lives? How do we earth this into the relational realities of life? In many ways, that's also what this dialogue with, with Jesus is about, even with the Pharisees, even when the Pharisees were trying to trap him. He's building this in to the truth of what goes around us. So, responses. Well, firstly, we, we declare singleness is much more than okay. Singleness is good. Singleness is a gift. Jesus was single. The apostle Paul was single. If marriage is a metaphor for all of us, which it is, single or married, of the nurturing and sacrificial, life-giving love of Christ, then devoting yourself as a single to Jesus in the context of church family is probably one of the most fulfilling and valuable lives lived out for God. Jesus says that. Paul says that. The Bible says that. Do we see that? Do you see that? Whether you're from an Eastern culture which may pressurize you to marry because singleness is considered shameful to the fact to the family, or whether you're from a Western culture which portrays how many men or women you bed as a trophy, the gospel of Jesus frees you from such lies and such belittling attitudes. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, it's the message version, tell the unmarried and the widows that singleness might well be the best thing. In John 4, when Jesus was talking with the woman at the well, when she asked him, how can she receive Jesus' promise of living water, the Holy Spirit, 
What's his reply? It's a funny conversation, really. He says, he says, go get your hubby, husband. Then she says, well, I don't have a husband. Then Jesus tells her miraculously, even though he'd never seen her before, no, actually, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. This seems like a pretty random conversation to me, doesn't it? She's asking for living water, and Jesus starts discussing her romance and sex life. Why does he answer like that? What's going on? Well, as ever, Jesus is profound. He's saying this. You've been looking for the water of life, absolute fulfillment, security, joy in human love. You've been looking for the water of life in romance and sex, but you are looking in the wrong place, my love. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, unless you make me your one true love, you will never find what you're looking for. Unless you make me your one true love, your whole attitude to love and sex and romance and marriage and singleness will be completely distorted. In short, Jesus is saying, make me your one true love, or you'll never know love at all. Marriage isn't the solution to loneliness. Friendship and community within the church is. In many ways, I don't even like the term single because nobody in God's church should consider themselves singled out. All of us are part of God's church. This is where we, the church, probably need to rise up and support our single people rather than either tut-tutting or ignoring them. Our faith in action means including everyone into our big, eternal, forever family. It means breaking down sometimes the ungodly fortress of the nuclear family. It means opening our homes, your homes, your lives, your time to others who are single so they are not single anymore. Do you get me? In God's house, no one should be lonely and feeling outside of the family. We need to get better at this. I need to get better at this. As an aside, God willing, in about two to three weeks, we may be receiving a Christian Ukrainian refugee family of three, soon to become four. They are going to live in Nev's house. Um, please give them a great welcome, too, when they get here. They're not single, but please give them, too, a great welcome here. Please help support them. They might even need financial support. Be generous in the midst of escaping the horror of this war. Let's show them grace, compassion, and love. Pray for them. Back to singleness. Singleness is a gift. Singleness is good. That's what the Bible says. The second response is to those who are married. Married. Marriage is a gift from God too. Not a lesser gift. A different gift. Equally beautiful. See verse 5, quoting Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. One flesh isn't just about sex. The term flesh or body or soma throughout the Bible and throughout the Bible and here is describing not just physical human vessels, but personhood, 
who you are, all of you. When two become one in marriage, there is personal transformation going on between two people. Marriage reshapes us, remolds us, remodels us. John Hosier writes this, who's visited our church a number of times. He writes this, to be one flesh involves a whole life together and a man a man and a woman talk together, share together, dream together, eat together, sleep together, and often have children as a result of being together. It is their whole lives together that make two people one flesh. There is a total belonging together, a union that cannot be broken. As we see marriage like that, it gives us such a sense of dignity and purpose. Amen. John, that was him saying that, not me. John was obviously getting very excited at that point, even writing a book. Marriage depicts the wonderful but very long and hard journey that Jesus is taking, on, taking us on, a journey of transformation. Listen to this. This will get you thinking, those of you who are married. The assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we will find just the right person is destructive because it overlooks a crucial fact. And the fact is this, that we always marry the wrong person. Surprised me when I first read it. We never know whom it is we marry. We just think we do. And even if we do marry the right person, just give it a while. He or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing, it means that we will not be able to stay the same person that we were after we entered it than we were before. Marriage changes us, so you can't be sure before you marry who the person will be that you're married to in a couple of years. The great challenge of marriage, therefore, is learning to know and love the stranger to whom you fi often find yourself married to. When we fall in love with someone, we shouldn't be just falling in love with the person that they are, but also the person that they will become. Marriage and sexual union are grace-given tools by which God makes us more like Him. That's the transformation. And so when we have affairs or one-night stands or multiple sexual encounters, these aren't just casual encounters at all. These aren't just harmless liaisons. They are deeply destructive connections that cause hurt, pain, rejection, insecurity, baggage for years, and scars. If they are not coupled with the commitment and lifelong covenant security and promise in marriage. Singleness is a gift, and so is marriage. The third response is to ask the question, is divorce and remarriage therefore permitted in the Bible at all? Very few people would actually say no. This is always a dangerous question, though, because when we have to juggle with the sinfulness of, the broken, of broken love, the complicated possibilities that have resulted in marriage breakdown, the desperation of couples and their hurt, real hurt and anger and resentment, etc. We might feel the pressure of approaching the Bible 
looking for loopholes, asking it to sanction what we want, using it for a way out, rather than actually hearing the force of what God is getting across through it. We need to watch that. When we look to the Bible, we must above all remember Jesus, Paul, God, the Bible, the church, stand for marriage as an exclusive, lifelong, permanent, loving, God-made, not man-made promise to each other. It is not based on our fluctuating feelings, he loves me, he loves me not, and experiences, but on, but on the promise we made to each other before God, a promise displaying his permanent love for us. John Stott writes, in marriage, therefore, the church's calling is not to conform to popular trends, but to bear witness to God's purpose of permanence. The disciples are obviously shocked by this. They come to the conclusion, if this is the situation between a husband and, uh, and a wife, it's better not to marry. Because in their culture, divorce and remarriage happened fairly casually. And so when we think about permissions or concessions for divorce, this isn't a tick box exercise, but rather the practical and pastoral process of untangling the destructive nature of our sinful hearts. That's how Jesus answers the Pharisees' understanding of divorce in this passage. Yet, because of the hardness of hearts, divorce and remarriage are permissible, not mandatory, on a few grounds. That's how I see it in the Bible. And basically, it boils down to acknowledging when the covenant, the binding promise of marriage has been permanently, irre irretrievably broken. Andrew Wilson summarizes these concessions using three A's. That makes it easy for me. Three A's. Physical adultery or serious sexual immorality with another person who isn't your spouse, isn't your partner. Adultery. Two, abandonment when a spouse deserts her partner or his partner. What Thomas Cranmer, former Archbishop of Canterbury during the reign of Henry VIII, he's had a, he had a bit of experience, describes as desertion with malice. Desertion would also apply to an unbelieving spouse leaving his or her Christian partner or the prolonged absence of a partner without news in, those, in that time, maybe war. Adultery, abandonment, two A's. And thirdly, persistently unremitting abuse. Where despite all efforts, maybe even periods of separation, the abuse doesn't stop, resulting in permanent breakdown of the marriage covenant. I know some of you, quite a few of you, have experienced that. The scars go deep. God knows. God heals, God loves, and even in the midst of all of that, God brings hope. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Last resort concessions to deal with the hardness of the human heart. In fact, in the Bible it says if the tragedy of divorce does play out, it's sometimes better not to remarry but stay single for God's glory's sake. Stay as you are, the Apostle Paul says. 
What I've noticed over the years when facing issues of divorce, it's one thing reading it all in books, but these are real lives. What I've noticed over the years when facing the issues of divorce and remarriage is that when it comes to counseling and pastorally advising couples, deciphering the hardness of the human heart is very complex. Confrontational, upsetting, emotive, and very messy all the time. Recognizing when the marriage covenant has been irretrievably, irreparably broken is hard, difficult to navigate. The Bible doesn't always give us yes and no answers, but it does give us principles loaded with grace and love. And the biggest principle of all is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God has committed us, you and me, the message of reconciliation. Fourthly, finally, our fourth response is to those who have been hurt and broken by divorce, adultery, and other unhealthy and damaging sexual relationships and encounters. Listen, if that's you here this morning, hear this. For God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever you are and whatever has happened, if you trust and believe in him, if you repent and turn around, you shall not perish, but continue to have eternal and increasing, forever intimate life with God. Fact. C.S. Lewis writes it this way. He can make the feeblest and filthiest of us if we let him into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot imagine. A bright, stainless mirror that reflects back to God perfectly, though on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we're in for, nothing less. Jesus forgives, loves unconditionally, heals and restores. The cross has proven that he can do that. Actually, he has already done that. Grace, mercy, and love. Andrew Wilson writes, with tears of joy in his eyes, Jesus gazes on his bride, who, is his, who, who his own love has made beautiful, and he takes the largest megaphone he can find, and say to the world, look, my church, the belle of the ball, the most beautiful girl in the world, the bride of Christ. Jesus is coming back for a wedding. It will be a wedding that will make ours look half-baked in comparison, where the feast will never stop, the wine will never run out, and the dancing will never end. You and I, if we're part of the church of God, will be there, not as a guest, not even as an usher, but as the bride herself, the one who cuts the cake and appears in all the photos. So, invite all of your friends. The wedding is coming soon. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you're of your picture of marriage. I thank you, Lord, that you are 
faithful and unswervingly gracious to us. I thank you, Lord, that you are strengthening us by your word and your spirit. I thank you, Lord, that you heal all of our past and you restore us because you love us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for those who are married in this room, that we would declare your glory and beauty even in the midst of fallenness. Give us the strength. Give us your spirit. Empower us to do that every single day. Lord, I pray for those who are single. I pray, Lord God, that they don't remain single in the church of God. That doesn't necessarily mean marriage, but that we are a community together, a family together, who know the grace of God in our lives together. I pray for our young people that they will know the love of Jesus and be able to stand strong, that they would have courage and anger in the midst of all the garbage that gets thrown at them. Lord, give us all grace to hear your word and to stand strong in the truth of it. In Jesus' name, amen.